The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. What's up, church? How's everybody doing this weekend? Hey, can uh, for those of you that came in late and you're wondering, um, just again, this is Trevor. He's the worship pastor from Medford Naz, our good friends. Thank you so much, man, for coming out, Trevor. Man, we are really, really blessed to have you with us. Um, Medford Naz has, we've just been become really good friends with those guys. Um, Pastor Dale and I even just had lunch together this week and just a great partnership for the gospel there. Um, and actually, um, a couple of announcements. Um, we have a killer opportunity that has, um, we've been invited to partner with them in. This year on July 16th, we will be having church at the fair with them. So our congregations will be meeting together at the Lithia Amphitheater and worshiping Jesus, doing baptisms, all that kind of stuff together at the Jackson County Fair this year on July 16th. So it's going to be a whole lot of fun. You guys excited about that? It's a killer opportunity, not just to partner with another church and give that example of that sort of kingdom ministry, which by the way, you guys do know this, right? Like when we get to heaven, there's not going to be a heritage section you know what I mean? Like a First Baptist section. Like it's, that's not how it's all going to go down. We're going to all be together, the extended body of Christ, just worshiping Jesus together. So it's a great thing to be able to do even now. Um, but also, the fair even, like there's going to be billboards out. The fair even passes out invitations to every single person that comes into the fair to come to that service for that whole week. Like it's a great opportunity to be able to preach the gospel to people that have never heard the name of Jesus or never been, been able to experience it. So uh, we'll have more information as we get closer. There'll be volunteer opportunities. We're going to do baptisms. It's going to be a big deal. But uh, go ahead and save the date. Make sure you're there for that. And side benefit, you get free admission into the fair after that, by the way. So there you go. Win-win, right? Um, So there's that. A couple of other announcements here. We have uh, First Wednesdays is coming up here pretty soon. Our first Wednesday service throughout the summer. Um, It's going to be June 7th, Wednesday night. Dinner starts at 530. We've got Curbside King coming to bring the chicken. And um, then we're going to be working worshiping together. There's going to be snow cones, games, family activities, all sorts of stuff. Please make sure to join us. These were wildly popular last year. Um, We want to be able to just hang out and have fun together with you and worship Jesus. Also, For His Glory Women's Gathering is coming up. This is a way down the road save the date, but there's going to be a gathering of, of women where Craig and Stephanie Strom are going to be sharing testimony of what they've been going through. If you guys remember, Stephanie, a few months ago, literally dropped dead right here in our hallway before the 830 service. But what God has done through that whole thing and the opportunity to share the gospel through it is huge. So we just want to invite you to invite people to come and hear that testimony. That'll be here, and it's for not just Heritage, but it's going to be through several churches in the valley. Even Cascade is getting people involved and bringing people in. It's going to be a great time to just share about the faithfulness of Jesus. Um, And then finally, this, um, as you guys know, this is Memorial Day weekend. And um, Memorial Day weekend is about way more than an excuse to go fishing, an extra day off, or a barbecue. Um, Memorial Day fish, Memorial Day weekend for us as Christians give testimony to even more than the fact that these men just gave of their lives that we might live in the freest and greatest country on earth. That is true. Amen. That is true. But, but more than the fact that we live in a free nation, more than the fact that we get to celebrate here and worship together and study together, more than all of that, we have been given incredible testimony by people who have followed the example of Jesus, whether they even realized they were doing it or not, in showing that greater love has no man than this, that he lay his life down for his friend. 
And so here today, we can celebrate as Christians Memorial Day in a way that's even different and far deeper and far richer than the average person in our country who's doing that because we get to see the example of men and women who have laid their lives down for our freedom and there's something real and tangible behind it. There's a reason our whole country sees that and gets excited about it. It's because there's something in our spirit that even through that is pulling us to the example of Jesus Christ who laid down his life for us. So it's good for us as a church to recognize something like this. So with that in mind, we just want to take an opportunity to honor the men and women who have done that. So if you're here and you have served or are currently serving in our nation's military, Coast Guard, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, any of those areas, and you have been serving our country to make us the free nation that we are, could you just stand real quick so we could honor you really briefly? Thank you guys so much. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much. What we're able to do right here this morning is built in no small part, and it's not just theoretical. We are literally able to do this because of the sacrifice that you guys have made and those who have given all. And so we ought to be appreciative of it. Amen, church? Amen. We love you guys. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Would you do me a favor? Grab your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 4. And when you have it, join me on your feet, if you would. I got good news for you this morning. We're going to finish Colossians today. I'm serious. We are done with Colossians today. It's been a good season though, right? Amen? But we're going to be done with that today. And just to give you a heads up on what we're going to be doing here moving forward, starting next week, we're going to start a summer series that will run through Labor Day where we're going to go through the books of First and Second Thessalonians. Now, resist the temptation to be gone all summer long. It's going to be, there's some rich stuff in this. Everything from end times and all sorts of stuff. Like what happens after we die. It covers all sorts of just awesome, interesting, even controversial topics. So we're going to be doing that through the summer. Our last service, or our last sermon, if you will, our last study on Thessalonians will happen on Labor Day weekend. And then after that, I've just been thinking lately, and, and I just feel like we've, we've been in the epistles for a really long time. Amen? It's good, but we've been in the epistles for a really long time. So I think we need to just step out for a season and revisit some stories of Jesus. So we're going to be starting the week after Labor Day. We're going to start a study through the book of Luke, looking at the life of Jesus, which I think will be a nice, fun change after, I don't know, 500 years of epistles, it seems like, right? Sound good? So today we're going to close it out, but don't worry, I'm not going to make us read through all of the greeting and farewells there at the end, only because we just don't have the time. I went long last service, and that's even without reading them there too, but don't worry, I chopped stuff. But that doesn't mean to say, let me make this disclaimer. The farewells and the greetings and all those things are just as inspired as anything else, amen? Worth our time, worth reading. So I encourage you to study these things on your own and look at the way Paul interacts with the people. Look at the love that he has for the people. Look at the care he has for even individuals and the personal nature of it. It's worth our time. But today we only have so much time. So we're going to look at verse 2 through 6. So in honor of the word of God, we read, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. 
Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this season in the book of Colossians. We thank you for the things that you've shown us. And I've prayed now, Lord, that as we bow our heads in prayer before you, that the posture of our hearts might be the same. Bowed before the living, true word of the maker in heaven and earth, our God and our King. So Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh, my rock, my King, my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, when you've been in a season like we've been going through the book of Colossians as slowly as we have, there is a drawback to it. It's real easy to get to a place where you can't see the forest for the trees. Like you get to a place where you're like, we're, we're looking at these little bitty things, but when we're in the book for so long, we can get to chapter four and forget completely what we talked about in chapters one or two. The reason I know that to be true for you guys is because I preached those sermons and I don't even remember them. So it's good for us to just remember what Paul's been doing as we bring this book to a close. Remember, Paul's writing to a city that was a thriving, commercially vibrant and diverse ethnically church. This city is a crossroads of trade. It's a place where many people came from all over the place to make all sorts of money. It was a crossroads where you could travel to Rome, to all these different areas. It was a very important city. And as such, and because of the wealth in it, it drew people from everywhere. And so when you have a melting pot like that, just like our country is, you end up with people with all sorts of different backgrounds from all sorts of places. There were Jewish people, there were Greek people, there were Roman people, there were people from all over the world. And when they came together like that, they bring with them the traditions, the customs, the history, and the religion from the places that they had been. So you had Jewish influences, you had Gnostic influences, you had pagan influences, you had Eastern religion influences. There were all sorts of influences that were all coming together in this particular city. And the push there in this city was towards something called syncretism. That fancy word, if you don't know what it means, you actually do, you just don't know it. Because if you have a cell phone and an iPad or a computer, you often sync them. It means we have different devices, they even look different, they may even have different functions, but they they get synced together so that they share the same information. And so what would happen in this culture was, let's pull from the Jewish faith here, the Gnostic faith here, the pagan faith here, the Christian faith here, whatever the case may be, let's meld them all together and let's coexist, right? Let's bring all these things together, mush it all together in one message, one sermon, one teaching, one philosophy, whatever the case may be. This was the push there in that particular city. And Paul is writing to the Colossian people to encourage them to absolutely not do that. Now, from the very beginning, from the, when God created the people of Israel, from that day, God has consistently been gathering together for himself and building a people that are, and he uses words like holy, separate, sanctified, that are apart from the rest of the world. If you think of the people of Israel, even as they moved into the promised land, many of the laws that the people of Israel were given by God weren't so much about, oh, shellfish is evil, don't eat that. It was more about, hey, I'm going to have you guys live in such a way that sets you apart from everyone else around you. 
And the purpose for that is given to us in, as we've covered not too long ago, the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, when God says to Abraham, the father of the Israeli people, he says to Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless you. And through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. And so the idea was this, God is raising a distinct people that will look and live separately from the world around. And the world is to recognize the differences, to see how God's blessing them, to see how God's leading them. And through those people, God will extend his blessing through the world. We would all be witnesses of who God is and what God is like. And all, like, that was the whole idea, a separate people. And so Paul wants the people of Colossae to live differently. And so how does he approach this? What's his thing here? How do we deal with this idea of we're Christians, but we're not in a Christian world? And we're not in a Christian environment. In fact, it was a big time pagan, materialistic, sexually charged culture that they were a part of. So what's the approach? Well, the approach was really simple, really profound. And it's the approach that the church is now, I believe, coming back around to. And it's the approach that we are going to have to really stick to as we are now in our own culture, moving into a season or a, a phase that's being referred to as, and clearly is, post-Christian. And the idea is this. Just uphold Jesus. Just uphold Jesus. Oh, there's other things we might do. But our emphasis, our focus, uphold Jesus. Let people see who Jesus is. More than poking holes in everyone else's argument, show them the answer. It's Jesus. And so in Colossians 1, there's this incredible, powerful, profound writing about the person of Jesus Christ where it lifts him up. The idea is the preeminence. It means to hold Jesus up as the master, king, ruler of everything, that everything is about Jesus. And so he writes in Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He's showing the people that it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what you're looking for. It's all about, this should be an amen, Jesus. Amen? This is the whole emphasis. And then in chapter 2, Paul moves into showing us what this king, what this Lord has done for us. And he talks about the fact that, that we die to our sins and our old self because of the death of Jesus Christ. And that in baptism we've been raised with him. That suddenly this old dead person that we used to be because of our sins and trespasses has been rescued from the dominion of darkness and made to be children of God. It's this incredible picture of the gospel. Not just that Jesus is king. But he's the king that loves us and set himself aside and died for us, rescued us, and has adopted us into his family. It's the incredible, beautiful gospel. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, everything pivots. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above. And it begins the section that we've been in the last couple of months uh, on what you might refer to as Christian living. And the idea is this. If Jesus really is the king, if he really is preeminent over all things, if he really did die for us and then raise us to a new life, if we really are a new creation, if we really are adopted into his family, if his spirit really has been placed in us as the word says, then what does life look like now? Because things have to change. I mean, an awareness of this king and what he's done has to affect us in some way. And, and the idea here is also, by the way, 
if you're not there yet, don't even you know, stop reading. Your book's done. It's almost like a choose your own adventure book. You just hit the end. If you are not Christian, if you have not yet been raised with Christ, don't worry about Christian living yet. You say, well, that seems wrong. Why would they say such thing? Because the essence of Christianity is this. The essence is this. We do not change our way of living to earn the approval of God. Do you hear this? Church, hear this. We do not change our way of life to earn the approval of God. Our way of life changes because of the approval of God. Do you hear me on that? Meaning this. You acting differently, living differently, even living as this separate holy people of God amidst a culture of paganism does not make God like you. He already does. That's why he sent his son to die for your behalf. It is out of an understanding of the goodness and mercy of Jesus that the motivation for life change happens. And that's really important because otherwise you can create a group of people who are trying to live in a way that looks Christian but have never given their lives over to the king. Their heart's never been transformed. They've never been given the Holy Spirit. So they look Christian but aren't Christian. So Christianity is not about behavior change. It's about Christians, we were dead, and now we've been made alive again. That's the essence. Of, it's not that, hey, Christianity is about we met Jesus, so we got better. No, no, no. We were dead, met Jesus, and came back to life. That's the reality of Christianity. And so it's after meeting Jesus, after our understanding of the gospel, after being adopted into the family of God that we go, okay, now that we are his, what does life look like moving forward? And so Paul goes into this thing about the idea that all of these realities affect every area of our life, that we put aside malice and slander and all of these sorts of ways that we used to live in these sinful ways because that's that old man that's been put to death. But we put on this new self now that we've been raised to walk in a new way. And he gives us all of these characteristics that are really, if you look at it, they're characteristics of who God is. So we are to be patient. Why? Because God is patient. And the way that we live as patient people tells people around the world about the patience of God. So compare it, take it back to that understanding of God's people of Israel going into the promised land, how he wanted them to look different. He wanted them to look different so they would recognize who he is. And so this is what we do. As a result, now that we've been saved and empowered by the Spirit, we become people who are growing in patience because we understand how patient God is and especially how patient he's been with us. Amen? We become people who forgive. Why? Because we have been forgiven much. We become people who love. Why? Because we've experienced the love of God. And so in all of these things that Paul is teaching the people of Colossae the way that they're to live, all of them are examples of, or you might say manifestations of, the nature and character of God. So we've been adopted into God's family, and now we're becoming like dad. Does that make sense, church? So Until you get adopted into the family, don't even worry about becoming like dad. Get dad first, right? But now, this is what Christian living looks like. So he talks about all these things. How you used to live, how it affects relationships between husband and wife, relationship between parents and children, relationships between, at that time, bond uh, bond servants and masters, or we talked about it a couple weeks ago as employers and employees, that this understanding and our new, not just understanding up here, but our new identity as the people of God affects the way we live and our relationships with everyone. We live different. 
The Bible calls it holy, separate lives. You understand that, church? Here's the problem. A lot of times, we have one of two things that can occur. Number one, you can have a group of people that claim understanding and knowledge of Jesus, that I believe in Jesus, he's my king, he has saved me, but they don't make any of those transitions ever. They don't live any differently than they did before. There's some really disturbing statistics. I mean, in mind, look at Colossians 4 verse 2 says what? Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Okay, so if this is what a Christian does, well, imagine this. In our culture right now, 65% of those, not of people in general, 65% of those who claim to be Christian never pray with other people, ever. 38% of people who claim to be Christian never pray themselves at all. Imagine that. How do you have a relationship with someone that you never talk to? I don't think it can work like that. I mean, if it works like that, me and LeBron James are tight. Me and Steph Curry. I have all sorts of ideas on things Steph Curry and Kevin Durant should do in order to win the NBA championship a little bit later this week. Um, he hasn't called me to ask me any of them yet, but we're tight. I'm sure it'll happen. Like, of course that doesn't work that way, right? 65% never attend a worship gathering. 65% never read the Bible. And 40% actually don't believe it's their need or responsibility to share the gospel with anyone. So on one end, you have this weird pendulum swing where you're claiming the lordship of Jesus and that you've been adopted into his family, but nothing in your life reflects that at all. But there's another pendulum swing that can go all the way the other way, and it, it happens something like this. We're the people of God. We've received the favor of God. We are distinct and holy, and therefore, we will separate from anyone that disagrees with us We'll have nothing to do with those who don't know Jesus. We definitely aren't going to go rub shoulders with sinners. We might get some of that sin on us if we do. And so we will be holy, separate people and have nothing to do with anyone else in the world around us. It's a sort of pharisaical attitude that was very prevalent even in the days of Jesus. And that tends to be kind of the extreme pendulum swings that Christians have been a part of for a really, really long time. Well, with that in mind, I want to challenge us on something today. And here's one of the benefits. Today is actually um, the least or one of the two least attended church services that we have in the calendar year. Memorial Day weekend, it's sort of the start of summer in a lot of people's minds in a lot of ways. That's normally the case. In today's case, I'm going to assume that that's working out well for us because I'm going to assume that most of the people here are those who claim the name of Jesus. Now, if you're a visitor that's here today, I, we love that you're here. Welcome. So glad you came. But you get to listen in on what we're supposed to be doing. All right? But, but to those of us that claim the name of Jesus, I have a challenge for us today with regards to this. Think about what Paul is telling, is not telling us to do. He's talking about our relationships with each other. But now he's going into what our relationships look like with those that are outside the church how we interact with the non-believers. Not just from a leadership level like Paul is, but he's speaking to the church, to just the average churchgoer there in Colossae as well. And he's not preaching, he's not preaching sectarianism. He's not preaching a separatist idea, an insular idea that says, I'm gonna insulate myself from the world around me and I'm gonna have nothing to do with it. In fact, the Bible actually assumes over and over and over throughout all the scriptures, it just assumes as if it's already a given 
that we as Christians will have, maintain, seek, and build relationships with people that are not Christians. It assumes it as if like, well, of, of course you will. But that's not necessarily the way it goes. And some people go, no, 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 that's, not, that's just for missionaries, Jeff. They go out and do that sort of stuff. We, we have to be holy and separate and we can't rub shoulders with people because first of all, what if we get that sin on us, right? We can't do that, obviously. And number two, what would people think? If they saw me hanging out with that guy, they're gonna think I'm not as holy as I really am. And I gotta watch that, you know? Forgetting that our righteousness is built on one person and it ain't us, it's Jesus. And so we can have this attitude of we need to separate from everyone because they're sinners and we're not. So we got to stay away now. And a lot of that is based in a self-righteous attitude that says, plus, I want people to see how spiritual and holy I am. And what will they think? Well, what does the Bible say to this? In John 17, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane right before going to the cross and he's praying. And he's praying not just for the disciples there, but the text actually says that he's praying not just for them, but for those who would come to believe in him down the road. In other words, he's praying for who? Come on, nice and loud, you know this. He's praying for who? Us. And in his dying prayer, listen to what he says, John 17, 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. But I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. Think about that. Jesus says, I'm praying for them. I've given them your word. They know the truth. And now the world hates them because of it. Because the world's against this truth that's come. But I don't pray that you take them out of the world. I pray that you protect them as they go into the world, that you protect them from the evil one. Earlier in Matthew 10, 16, he says, Behold, I am sending you out as lambs into the midst of wolves. He doesn't say, Behold, there's wolves out there. Build some bunkers and let's hide out. He says, not just that there's wolves out there, not just be careful, but... I'm sending you to him. And he's not just talking about the apostles. This is part of even the absolute, the, the great commandment, the great commission, excuse me, that was given to us. Matthew, 8, or Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now think about this. You got your Colossians brains on, yeah? The text that upholds the authority of Jesus. Here it writes in Matthew, Jesus himself says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. In other words, who's in charge? Come on, nice and loud, who's in charge? Jesus. The 8.30 service was so dead this morning. I need your energy, trust me. So who's in charge? And what is it he says? Go therefore. Think about that. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go. Not let's all stay huddled up. Go! What does he tell us to do? Nice and loud? Go! This is, what he's, this is a command from the king of heaven and earth. Go and make disciples in all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Church, go! Tell them about me. Make disciples. And trust me, I'm with you as you go. This is what the king of heaven and earth has called us to do. Now, church, is it good that we as a church are involved in mercy ministries? 
I mean, is it good that we feed the poor? Of course. Is it good that we clothe the naked, that we reach out to the orphans? Are those things good? But what's primary? We were reminded of this just last week. The pastors and I, we went up to Western Seminary. They had an event for pastors up there and for elders that they do somewhat regularly. They call it the Spurgeon Fellowship, and they have a speaker share. And Art Azurdia was there, and he was preaching about what is the primary mission of the church. And he was preaching out of the book of Acts, and he said this, The mission that that Jesus assigns the church is not ambiguous. Sure, we are to care for and love others, but is that the absolute mission of the church? Our mission is clear. Tell the gospel. The primary mission of the church is not mercy ministries, is not feeding the hungry, is none of those things. If anything, those things should be vessels through which we are able to bring the gospel. But the primary mission of the church above anything else is that we carry the gospel to lost and dying people that don't know Jesus. That's our job. And you go, well, it's not all of our job, Jeff, because I don't have the spiritual gift of evangelism. That is such a cop-out, and I have had that for so long myself, so I understand, and it's with grace I tell you this, because, look, right now, speaking in front of you guys, no fear in me at all. Like, I, I am totally comfortable in this kind of setting. But if I was to leave here and go downtown Medford and just go try uh, uh, sparking up conversations with random strangers on the street corner to tell them about Jesus, much fear. Much fear. And so for so long, I felt like there were times I've confused or, or justified or fooled myself into thinking, well, I mean, my gift isn't evangelism. I'm a teacher, and I do teach the gospel when I preach up here, so I'm doing my part. But that's not true. I mean, that great commission comes way before we get to anything about spiritual gifts. It's the call of all the church to spread the gospel It's the call of every Christian to carry the gospel to the lost. And if we're at an age right now, especially in our country, if we sit back and only wait for the evangelists or the church preachers to do all the evangelistic work, we're going to be waiting on Jesus to come for a really long time. Because it's not normal anymore for the random unbeliever to just somehow end up in church. It's not happening anymore. In fact, the narrative in the world around us is telling them not to come to church for any reason. But Christians are not people who have arrived. Christians are people who've been sent. And our job is, this is not church in its whole right here. Our primary mission as the church is to carry the gospel to people that don't know Jesus. I have some stunning statistics about our valley. When I found this out, I I thought that can't be true. But it is. These are numbers from 2016. These are not church numbers trying to make, you know, churches trying to make everything sound bad. This is census stuff right here. But in the Rogue Valley, that's from Grants Pass, our valley, that whole, the whole Rogue Valley here, there are 294,695 people, residents, 294,695 residents. Of that number, only 28% of the people in our valley claim religion, only 28%. And out of that, only 15.7% claim evangelical Christianity. So when you take out 
um, everything from New Age religions to Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, Catholicism, those sorts of things, and you just narrow it down to evangelical Christianity, only 15.7% of the 294,000 residents in our valley claim Christianity. That means there are 46,267 Christians in the Rogue Valley, but that means there are 248,000 428 people that if they don't understand the gospel and they died today, they would die apart from Jesus. 248,000 people in our neighborhood. So what's the mission organization that's coming to the Rogue Valley? There's not one because it's already here. Who? It's us. Nobody's sending missionaries to Medford. You guys do not. I mean, except for, the, except for the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witness. But you know what? There should be some conviction in that, right? But no missions organizations are sending missionaries to the Rogue Valley. Why? These are our people. This is our responsibility. This is our neighborhood. These are our coworkers. These are our family members. These are our friends and neighbors. We are already here. There shouldn't need to be a missions organization because God has taken you and in his sovereignty and in his providence, you live here now. I'm moving tomorrow. Well, you still got today. And there are 294,000 people, excuse me, 248,000 428, it's actually 0.5, I'll take the 0.5, I got that guy. But the rest of them, 248,000 people that apart from Jesus, unless someone brings them the gospel and shows them the truth of Jesus and they believe, they'll die without Jesus. They'll burn. They'll be in torment and in chaos apart from the Lord. 248,000 people. Like that should be, there should be gravity to that, right? Because we always think that all the unbelievers are out there. Especially in this valley, like, let's just face it. This is a little Bible Belt snippet that somehow got pulled out of, like, Alabama or Tennessee or North Carolina, something, and ended up in blue Oregon. There's this big red spot, something or another. Like, we're southern Oregonian, the Bible Belt of the Pacific Northwest. But only 15.7% of people who live in the Rogue Valley right now claim the name of Jesus. That's stunning. But the good news is this. God has a plan to save them. And you know what that plan is? Everybody do this. Not me, like point you. That's his plan. That's the plan to save the lost in the Rogue Valley. It's us. And you go, so what does this look like? Good news. The Bible is intensely practical. And in this text, Paul shows us some ideas of what it looks like as we have relationships with those that are not believers. So take a look. Paul says, continue in prayer, being watchful in it in thanksgiving. And then he says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear this is how I ought to speak. So obviously, we pray for the people in this valley. Amen, right? Father, we pray right now for those that are outside the kingdom of God. That even as they're out today on a day like Memorial Day, Lord, may you use the witness and the, the visual of the soldiers that have given their lives for us. May that push them past that, Lord. May they see that you have laid your life down for them. And may you save them, Lord. We pray for them and we pray for those who speak the gospel in this valley. In Jesus' name, amen. So we obviously pray. 
But what does it look like the way that we live and the way that we walk? Well, there's some ideas here. It says here in Colossians chapter 4, verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Now, I want you to remember, don't try to cop out on this and go, well, but life was so different then. Stuff here is so just icky and sinful and dangerous. We can't do this. No, that culture was just as sexualized. They just didn't have the technology. But it was just as pagan, just as sexualized, just as, if not worse. So it's very much like where we are today. In very much it is. And so Paul's telling these Colossian people, hey, as you're walking with, as you're spending time with those that are outside the church, number one, he says, you need to kind of walk in wisdom. So here's what I'm going to tell you. <clears throat> I am your pastor. As your pastor, I mean, um, I am giving you permission. In fact, I'm telling you that it's a biblical command that we, outside of the walls of this church on Sunday morning, are actively and intentionally building relationships, friendships with those that are not like us outside. I, I believe it is our responsibility to go and be building relationships with people that don't love Jesus for the sake of it. So in other words, this, I'm, I'm giving you permission to be less churchy, if you know what I mean. To get outside the Christian bubble and start trying to bridge the gap and be like Jesus who was a friend to sinners and build relationship with those that are outside the walls of the church. But you got to do that with wisdom. There's things you should consider. I have some questions here that I got from a book that I think would be, be worth um, us considering. Um, for example, this. As you're thinking this through, and I, I want you guys as we're doing this this morning to think through. Where, what are your hobbies? Where do you work? Who's in your neighborhood? Where do you like to hang out? What are the people that are around you? What has God already placed you in the midst of? I'm telling you, you've been sent there. You didn't just end up working at the hospital or just end up working at the bank. God in his providence and in his sovereignty put you there. So with the people that are around you that don't know Jesus, I want you to think through, how do I do this? How do I build relationships with them that, that brings the gospel in? And one of the things that I think you need to consider so that you're walking in wisdom is this. Is this beneficial to me and to the gospel? And here's what I mean by that. You can't use, I'm going to build friends with unbelievers as an excuse to live as if you're an unbeliever. Because God, and it's been clear already as we've just looked all through Colossians 3 into chapter 4, God is calling us to look like him, not them. So if building a relationship with an unbeliever in your world, if you feel like to reach that person, I'm going to have to do something that is contrary to God's law, let me assure you, you've not been called to that. Men, don't for a second think you're going to go to the strip club and start a ministry to strippers. Seriously though, right? You can't, you can't violate the word of God in that way and then blame it on mission. <laughs> That's not the way it works. The idea is this, even in our ministering to others, our job is to make Jesus look glorious and for us to be more and more and more like Jesus. Does that make sense? So when you're thinking these things through, like I want to build relationships with unbelievers, I want, to, I want to be able to rub shoulders with sinners and be a friend to sinners like Jesus was, but is this good for me? Is this edifying to me? And does it make God look good? Number two, will I lose self-control and be mastered by what I participate in? So let me, let me share something with you. Um, we talked just two weeks ago, it's in the text, about employees, we have a biblical mandate to obey and be respectful and work hard for our bosses at work. Is that true? Okay, 
To do that, if your boss, let's say your boss is an atheist, or, or even if he's not, but he just has a rule at the workplace that says, I don't want any of you standing up on your chairs and evangelizing, preaching the gospel. We got work to do here. You leave your faith stuff outside the office and just do your job. If you then come in, reject what he's called you to do and begin doing that, number one, you're not going to be employed there very long. Number two, I don't think you're still honoring the mandate to honor your boss and to be a good employee. So you have to get creative. You have to start thinking, how am I going to connect with these people that are around me, building relationship with them in a way that I can bring the gospel to bear, but also honor my boss and not become an evangelist at work in that sort of sense? Yes, there's the live as an example. I'm going to crush that quote later, so don't worry about it. But, but other than that, so for some of you, let's say maybe the people in your office, let's say they all get together after work on Thursdays and they all go to happy hour. What should you do? For some of you, I would say, yeah, you should go to happy hour. For some of you. For some of you, that's a place where you can go, you know what? I'm going to go spend some time with these guys. I'm not going to go to happy hour and get sloshed. I'm going to honor God's word and do what I'm called to actually do. But I'm going to go be a light in a dark place. I'm going to build relationship with people. And even in that environment, they will get to see that I'm a little bit different. They'll see I don't need to get drunk to be happy. They're going to see that I can carry myself with responsibility. I don't have to be mastered by alcohol. I'm going to do that. And for some of you, that could be really fertile ground to go share the gospel with people that own the gospel. For some of you, you shouldn't go near happy hour at Sonic, much less anywhere else. (laughs) Because we've been wired differently. And some of us can handle that and some of us can't. And we need to understand what our own limitations are what our own weaknesses are, our own proclivities are, our own convictions that God has given us. And we need to be able to go, can I even handle that? Or am I just going to have to let someone else do that one? Because I I know my weaknesses and I know what I'm dealing with. And I want to minister to God, but you know what? Happy hour is not a good place for me. Um, I I need to be somewhere else. Or what about this? And, And by the way, that's, it's really important because you can go about mission in such a way that looks like you're going about mission, but really deep down, you're just using, I'm going to become friends with sinners as an excuse to just go live like one. And that's, we are called to be separate, to be light in the darkness, but to be light, not darkness. Amen? Does that make sense? So you need to understand those kinds of things. Number three, are you leading a brother astray by your example? Maybe you can handle going to happy hour, but your guy that's with you can't, so don't drag him there. I mean, the liberties that God has given us are liberties to be enjoyed, but the Bible also makes it really clear that we are our brother's keeper. And that the Bible says we're to show kindness to those within the family of faith first, and then those on the outside. So don't lead a weaker brother into a place where he's going to be struggling in the name of mission. Honor your brother, care for your brother, trust God to work those other things out. But think about the decisions that you're making in that, even the way that you broadcast that or the way that you deal with the things that you're involved in. Think about the fact that you do have people around you. And though the quote was mentioned in the story of Cain and Abel, as if the answer were no, am I my brother's keeper? The resounding answer to that throughout scripture is what? Yes, you are your brother's keeper. So are you causing your brother to stumble? Number four, and I'm going to do these quick because I ran, I spent way too long in this in the first service. Um, number four, if I fail to do this, will I lose an opportunity to share the gospel? Or in other words, if I don't share the gospel to this group of people or to this setting, who else will? 
Have I been uniquely chosen for this group of people? And is there no other light at this particular point in time? Am I going to miss a chance if I don't do this? Number six, is my relationship, excuse me, number five, am I helping others or am I being selfish? So is my motive in this really to bring the gospel to those people or is this just what I want to do? And so I'm, I'm calling it mission, but I'm really just feeding the flesh and doing what I want to do. Something to think through. Number six, is my relationship with them turning the corner? I'm using that phrase. Is my relationship with them turning the corner? So um, I, I have a group of people that I am right now intentionally, like um, these, these people are way outside the Christian bubble. And I'm intentionally befriending, building relationships with, um, working alongside, helping out, really rubbing shoulders with this group of people that if I just stayed here in the church circle, I'm never, ever, ever going to meet these guys, ever. But I'm over time getting to know them, building relationships with them, and it's been really, really good. But there's a question that's always in my mind as I'm wrestling through these kind of things. At what point do things maybe turn a corner? whether it be individually or overall with this particular group of guys. And, and this is what I mean. You can say, man, I'm building relationship with these people um, for the sake of the gospel. Well, are you preaching the gospel to them? No, not yet. I'm just right now, I'm just trying to build relationship and build trust. Okay, fine. But five years from now, like, dude, come on. You know what I mean by that? And, and honestly, I, I really believe this. I believe it is crucial to go build relationship with people. I, I went to the final four this year, got to go see Carolina, God's team, win the national championship. And as we were coming out of what? I don't know what's so funny about that. As you're coming out of the arena, 77,000 people pouring out on the streets. There's a dude on a street corner with a megaphone. He would say preaching the gospel. I would say harassing everyone. And no one is on their knees repenting. No one. And the vast majority, if not all, the stories that we hear when we hear about lives being changed through our church or elsewhere, they come through relationship. And so I believe it's crucial to build a relationship. But you can use that, I'm building relationships first, as like a cop-out for a really long period of time because you're just scared to, to preach the gospel. And so at some point, if you're actually on mission, you do the mission, right? And so I'm constantly wrestling with this. I'm like, okay... I want to build relationship with these people. I'm not going to just drag them to Bible study on day one because I won't go anywhere. So I'm befriending them. And then Easter service came. You can get anybody to go to Easter service. So some of them actually came to the Easter service, which was really cool. And then conversations come out of that. But I'm also being very careful to build relationship all the while going, but it does have to go somewhere. This isn't just an excuse for Jeff to not hang out around church people and act churchy. It's certainly not an opportunity or an excuse to indulge flesh. Jesus put me here for a reason. And so somewhere that, that relationship has to turn the corner. Does that make sense? So go somewhere with those relationships for sure. Number seven, am I following the example of Jesus? And so there, there's two things to consider here. The, the first one is this. What is the example of Jesus? Well, Jesus wasn't afraid what the religious people thought when it came to saving people. Amen. In fact, the religious people had all sorts of accusations of Jesus. Though, let me clarify, Jesus never sinned. So in other words, how many times did Jesus get drunk? Everybody hold that up. Zero times. How many times did Jesus cuss someone out or indulge in some sort of inappropriate relationships with prostitutes or any of those sorts of things? Never. 
Jesus never sinned. But he didn't exactly seem to care what the religious elite in his day thought about the fact that he was spending time with, becoming friends with those who weren't sinners. When he had dinner with Zacchaeus, they're like, what is he doing? Spending time with that guy? When the woman comes in to wash his feet, they say, man, if he had any idea what type of woman this was, he would not let her do this. There were others who called him, even he himself said, you call me, John the Baptist came, didn't eat, didn't drink, you said he's got a demon. I come eating and drinking and you say he's a glutton and a wine-bibber. In other words, people would look at his behavior and they made up excuses to point to him and to say, he's not so holy, look at him. And when it came to saving the lost, Jesus didn't seem to get real caught up in that, Right? And so for, the, for those of us who are, are maybe more on that, I struggle with legalism or religion side, and we find ourselves like, well, man, I should bring the gospel to them, but man, what would people think if? I think you should look to the example of Jesus for that and go, he didn't seem to worry so much about that and I, us more than anyone because our righteousness is not built up in who we hang out with. Our righteousness is built only on Jesus Christ. Amen? But at the same time, the Bible's so balanced at the same time, when Jesus went to places where sinners were, what happened? They got saved. People repented. And even when they didn't in rooms of people who had accusations and things, Jesus wasn't afraid to rebuke entire rooms of people at the time. So don't use the example of Jesus as a reason to just endlessly hang out with people that you really just in your flesh want to hang out with. And don't constantly go, but I can't say anything to offend them. Let me assure you, the gospel will never not be offensive. Satan doesn't have anyone on his team that he's going, yeah, we'll give these up. He doesn't want to see anyone saved. He wants to see them all destroyed. So people aren't going down without a fight. So understand, yes, we should be friends with sinners and stop worrying about our own self-righteousness. But yes, we're friends with sinners for a reason. And that relationship has to turn the corner. And to not share the gospel out of fear is to not follow the example of Jesus as well. Amen? So this is the goal, to bring them. The, and again, I can't emphasize this enough because I could see people taking this, Jeff gave me permission to go to bars. That's, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you need to go to the Lord and say, where am I and where have you put me in life and how do I bridge a gap to build relationships with unbelievers? And more than anything, hear me on this. The mission of spreading the gospel is not an excuse to live like an unbeliever. If anything, it's a greater emphasis on making sure you live like Jesus in the midst of the unbelievers. That's what you're being called to do. And if you go into a place and live just like them, you're making a mockery of the gospel. So pray about those things. We're to walk in wisdom. Got to do these other ones really quick. What else is it that we have here? Verse six, let your speech also or always be gracious. The Bible tells us that the speech that we utter is actually a window into what's going on in our heart. So think about the way that you communicate with people that are unbelievers when you're around them compared to, oh, I don't know, maybe when you're around just church people. Is there a difference? Um, or, or maybe it's not just profanity or something. Like, are you just always complaining, always tearing people down, always criticizing, always pointing fingers? Or is your speech gracious? In other words, this. If, if our words are testimony to what's going on in our heart, 
then does your speech give testimony to the fact that you've received grace in your heart? Does the way you talk with people and talk about people come out as if it's coming from someone who has received mercy and forgiveness and love? If someone only got to look at your words, would they be able to tell that you're a Christian? That's important. And and always, you go, well, right now I'm just building relationships, so I got to talk like them. No, you don't. No, you don't. You can be gracious and loving and not talk just like everyone, and they'll still welcome you in. I assure you of that. Jesus did it. So our speech is to be always gracious. And then the next part that it says here is, verse 6, seasoned with salt. Salt meaning the preservative, the idea that stopping decay. What's he talking about here? Talk about the gospel. Not, don't just be nice, but be nice and talk about Jesus. Every opportunity that you get, point people to the goodness of God. That's the seasoning of life, if you will. That's who's preventing decay. When the Bible tells us to be a light, when the Bible tells us to be salt, that's what it's saying. We are bringing the good news of the gospel to a dying and decaying world. Hide it under a bush? Oh no, let it shine. That's what it says, right? And salt does nothing staying in a salt shaker. You got to get it out on the food. So our speech should always be seasoned with salt, with goodness and kindness, speaking of Jesus. And then lastly, Colossians 4, verse 6, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So there's, there's something here. There's a couple of things here. Number one, the way that we live among unbelievers, it, it seems to imply that from time to time we should be asked, Right? That at some point, when things happen, when things get dark, when people go through tragedies, they should be looking to you because they see the love of Christ in you. And there should be quite, they should be just curious why you're different. Man, why you, you go out, you never get drunk. You go out and hang out with us and you always seem to kind of be in control and yet you're happy. We, we get drunk because we were miserable, but you, you seem to always be happy. And all those guys at work, they're always trashing their wife all the time. But you actually talk really gracious about your wife all the time. Like, either you're married to Wonder Woman or something. Like, tell me about that. Hey, you always leave the party at a certain time on Saturday night because you're going to church the next day. Why do you always do that? Like, there should be things about the way we are relating to the lost that are a little bit of a curiosity to them. But but the other thing is this, is like, you need to know how to answer the question. I mean, that seems silly, right? But you need to know how to answer the question. So there was a guy, this is many years ago, had this friend named Casey. And uh, Casey and I were friends. We'd hang out, we'd go fishing, we'd watch ball games, we'd play guitar together, we'd do all this different kind of stuff. And we had close relationship and would hang out all the time. But at one time, Casey went through some stuff, and I don't remember all the, the scenario, I don't remember everything that was going on, but I remember standing in my kitchen, it was one of those where your kitchen is open to the dining room, living room, so I'm kind of standing behind the counter on the kitchen side, he's on the dining room side talking to me, and he's talking about all this stuff that's going down, and I see the tears start building up in his, li- in his eyes, and I'm realizing this conversation is turning, this, this conversation is going somewhere right now. And he's starting to get emotional, which was very unusual for our conversation. We didn't talk about fishing and cry. Most guys don't. I love that fish. It was just like, we just don't do that. But this was for real. And there was something going on. He was crying. And, and, and then I, he asked me this question about hope or something like that. And I'm just like, I, dude, I just, I just go to Jesus. And he was like, how do I do that? 
And those are golden moments, aren't they? And in that moment, I went from a guy who could talk to him about anything to a blubbering, stumbling robot that has no clue where it's going. And I just, I went from normal conversation to, uh, um, uh, well, uh, and part of that's nerves. I get it. But you know what I realized even looking back on that and many different times in my life, I didn't have an answer ready. And I'm just kind of talking, stumbling around, hoping I come across it. You know what I mean? How many of you are verbal processors in the room just like me? We just, we talk and hope we find a point along the way sometimes, like that's me. Hey, don't do that with the gospel. Know the gospel. I would say rehearse the gospel. Man, to your spouse or your friend here, something like that, talk to one another, try it. Hey, honey, what's this Jesus stuff? Can you tell me the gospel? Like, rehearse, know the answer. If someone asks me, how do I catch steelhead in the Rogue River? I know the answer. I don't need to stumble. I don't need to stutter because I'm passionate about it because I know what I'm doing. I have an answer ready. How much more so about Jesus? And, and so I want to I challenge you on this because most Christians, that's where the conversation goes. You get weird. You just, can we be laughing ourselves a little bit, right? You get weird. Don't get weird. If anything, when those conversations turn and someone asks us a question about Jesus, that's when the boldness should ramp because you got the Holy Spirit in you. Something's clearly stirring in this brother's heart and you're about to speak the truth about the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is not the time to be shy. But we're weak and we're scared and it's, I understand all that. But I, I think Paul's being intensely practical here and saying, hey, have an answer ready. Know the gospel. Know Jesus. Know the truths that I've been telling you about. And I think there's even a little interesting side note where it says how you ought to answer each person. Because everybody's different. Everybody's different. And the people that you interact with, there could be different ways. If I'm talking to a churchy person who's doing all the religion and they always go to church and all these kind of things, then when I'm talking with them, I'm probably going to want to talk about scary verses. You know what I mean? Like Matthew 7, I believe it is, where um, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Do we not do all these things in your name? And what does Jesus say? Depart from me for I never knew you. I might want to talk about that kind of stuff to the churchy person. To the person who's just wallowing and imprisoned in sin, I might want to talk about the freedom that Jesus gives us in Christ. To the person who's just lost a loved one in their despair and without hope, I might want to talk about the hope that God gives us, the promise for resurrection. To a hardcore environmentalist. I want to talk about no one is more of an environmentalist than God. He created perfection and sin ruined it, but take hope. He's putting it all back together. Get on the team. There's different in ways. Even you look at how Jesus approached different people in the scripture. It's different. So where you are in life, you need to understand God has sovereignly put you where you are. The job you have is not an accident. The neighborhood you live in is not an accident. And you are not some Christian who has arrived and you happen to be part of a club. You are someone who in the providence of God, he called you before you were born. He died for your sins before you were even a thought in a parent's eye and before they were too. And he has sovereignly placed you in these areas of life and put you on mission. 
Because around you, there are people that are lost. And church, hear me on this. They're not just going to wander into church. They need the gospel. To which end, let me say this as well, this idea of having an answer ready. There's that quote. It's all over Facebook. It's all over Instagram. It's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. It's debated whether he really said that or not, but it's definitely taken out of context because to camp on this alone is to ignore all of the rest of his theology for the sake of one quote. But that quote goes something like this. At all times, be preaching the gospel, and if necessary, use words. You guys have heard that before? Church, listen to me. It's always necessary to use words. You have to speak the name of Jesus. You need to build relationship. You need to live in a way that's different. You need to live in a way that you are a light into a dark place. You need to get out of your Christian bubble and go make friends that don't know Jesus. You need to do all of those things, but you need to have an answer ready, and the answer is Jesus, and that doesn't come by default. Preach the name of Jesus. I'm scary. It's worth it. It's hard. That's because Satan is against you. But remember what Jesus said in the Great Commission. Lo, I am with you always. And I think that if we could see into the eternal, if we could see into that other realm, as we stand there before those that are lost, scared, shaken in our boots. By the way, the awkward answers, the scary answers, God still uses those too. So say something. Just don't chicken out. But if we could stand in that place and yet see into the eternal as the unbeliever is standing before us, we're scared to death to preach the gospel. What do we do? What do we do? But if we could see into the eternal and see the person of Jesus standing right beside you, the King of kings, the Lord of all who created heaven and earth, we wouldn't be scared. And yet that's the exact reality that we walk in. And he calls us to walk in faith. So brothers and sisters, I'm telling this has been so good for me this last season. And I want you to join me in experiencing the vibrancy of being on mission and doing what God's called us to do. As the guys come up, guys, and I'm finishing up here, I wanted to say something, tell you a little something kind of, <laughs> excuse me, that's really interesting about this, like, this, this whole idea of like being on mission for God and speaking these kind of things, Artaxerxes, as he was speaking to us um, while we were up there at the, the, that pastor's conference at the Spurgeon Fellowship, he says, we've kind of got all this backwards if you take a look at it. Sometimes we wait until we feel this power of the Holy Spirit come upon us and then we want to go and talk to people about Jesus out of that. And his point was this, you won't feel it till you do it. Nothing in our physical nature is going to always be comfortable with speaking the gospel to people because our flesh is not going to want to do that. Satan doesn't want us to do that. He doesn't want to give up on the people that are out there. But the Bible is calling us to be those who walk by faith and not sight. And so church, I'm challenging you on this. I was telling Pastor Dale the other day, that Pastor Dale Schaefer from, from Medford Naz, I was like, you know, I'm so tired, and I have to say this carefully, <laughs> I'm so tired of church transfer growth. What I mean by that is when, our, when the churches only grow because people are coming from one church to another. Now with that in mind, if you're here and you came from another church, we love that you're here. Don't take me, don't take that too far or anything like that. But there's something so reviving for the church when you see the lost get saved. But we're not in a culture where we can just hope they show up. And they're not going to show up until they see it's important to you, until they see that they are important to you. 
So church, don't leave evangelism to me or to the elders or pastors because we're probably never gonna get windows into the walk that you walk. But God put you there. God gave you his Holy Spirit and God gave you his gospel. He has given you all you need. At this point, if you would, I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. And my guess is all of you in this room already have people in mind. And so I want us to take step one right now. Paul says, hey, pray for us that a window might be opened that an opportunity might come to speak it. I want you to pray that for you right now. Who are people in your life that need Jesus and God put you there? And pray that that window comes. Pray that God empowers you not to chicken out. Pray that opportunities come to build relationships with them that they might be saved. 248,000 people in this valley's lives depend on it. Let's pray and then worship.